Hello, readers. Coming up, it's my conversation with Bassam Youssef. If you enjoy my chat with Bassam or any of the authors I've had the pleasure of speaking with enough to want to buy the book, I've made it easy for you. Just click on the book title through the episode description on Apple, Spotify, through booksonpod.com, or any other podcasting platform, and it takes you to a link to buy the book through bookshop.org. Now, they haven't paid me anything to say this, but I love bookshop.org because it connects readers with independent books stores across the country. And for the latest on this podcast, please do follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Books on Pod. My name is Antonio Sadra. And I am Bob Stickold. We are the authors of When Brains Dream, Exploring the Science and Mystery of Sleep. You're listening to Books on Pod with Trey Ellinger. Hello, readers. Bassam Youssef is best known as the John Stewart of the Middle East. But even that impressive title sells him short. He's worked as a heart surgeon, TV host, published author, stand-up comedian, and an advocate for plant-based diets. And now he gets to add children's book author to the list. The new book is titled The Magical Reality of Nadia, and it's available now wherever books are sold. Bassam, thank you for the time. How are you doing today? Of course. It's my pleasure, too. For anybody who hasn't heard of this book before, what is the magical reality of Nadia? The magical reality of, of Nadia is a children's book that I wrote inspired by my daughter, Nadia. Well, it's kind of like inspired my own story, but I kind of projected on my little daughter. And Nadia is, in real life, she's eight years old, but in the book, she's a little bit older. She's in middle school. And she falls upon this magical hippo pendant and... She found an ancient Egyptian teacher who's been trapped there for 2,000 years because of a curse. And he comes out and he helps her the same way like the genie of Aladdin kind of helps Aladdin. And through magical trips and journeys through history and through uh, time, she learns much more about stuff that helps her in her present day in her school in the United States as a daughter of an immigrant family. It's a story about courage and empathy and beautiful history and magic. And it's very adventurous, too. So I'm actually quite blessed to be part of this amazing project. So just to uh, lift the curtain up on my life a little bit, I have a six-year-old daughter at home, and she is a voracious reader. She is a little bit ahead of where uh, most six-year-olds are. So I was flipping through this book and deciding what I wanted to ask you about with the book, and I was looking at it, and it's a smartly written book, but it's also a book that I think is decipherable to kids who have that passion for reading. So I let her try it, and sure enough, she loved the book. She loved the main character. We talked a little bit about what it was that she was learning in the book. She talks about, I apologize if I'm getting characters' names now, how there was a Jason who was really mean to Nadia, and how that wasn't cool. And I'm like, that's right. We shouldn't be mean to somebody just because they are a little bit different from us in any way, shape, or form. So I think that those messages are getting across even to younger kids. How important was it for you to create a book that is not taking kids' intellects for granted, which includes exploring certain emotional avenues? It was very important for me because as someone who have moved to the United States only a few years ago, in a very, very interesting political climate, I wanted to have my kids love this country, this new country of hers, America, and understand that being different is a source of power, not something to be ashamed of or to be worried about. And my daughter, for example, she's here in Los Angeles, and she goes into a school where people come from all different shapes and forms and colors and religions and ethnicities and backgrounds. It's amazing. 
and she will grow up understanding that being different is the norm. So in the book, we discuss how you could be picked up by some people because you are different. But also we discuss, we tell them that those people who pick on you, they might not know that they are also have in their own history, in their own heritage, a point of time where they were different and people were also picked on them. And even Jason, the mean kid in the book, at the end of the book, he comes to terms and he understands this. And it's kind of like, I know that this is like really big messages, but I think we didn't make it in a way that it's preachy or something. And it's enjoyable, as you said. And it's important to me that little kids understand that growing some together in a place where we are different and we bring different contributions from where we come from is important. That's what makes this country the amazing country that we live in. How important was your co-author, Catherine Daly, with this book? Oh, my God, how important. I mean, she is everything. I might have came up with the characters, with some of the storyline, but she breathed life into the character. She is lovely. She is amazing. And I could have not made this book without her. She did the heavy lifting. I mean, I told Scholastic, I have the ideas, but I don't know how to write for children. And she told me, well, they did. Scholastic told me, we have someone who can help you. And she did. And what a great help she was. She's amazing. And I could not give her enough credit. And one other thing that my six-year-old was ecstatic about with this book was the fact that there were some comic strip elements to it as Mm. well. Was that a part of the vision early on as you were uh, really beginning to uh, get this whole thing going? Absolutely. So I actually have a funny story. Scholastic sent me like a few samples of some illustrators' work. And, you know, they were good, but like none of them clicked with me. And I remember I was in my living room. And Nadia was watching uh, Netflix. And then I saw she was watching a cartoon. And I loved the illustrations. I loved the drawings. And it was a cartoon. It's called The Last Kids on Earth. And I was on the phone with Scholastic at that exact moment discussing the illustration. And I said, guys, have you seen The Last Kids on Earth? And he said, yes. Can we get that illustrator on board. <laughs> and then they reach out to Douglas Holgate, who's I think he's out of New Zealand or Australia, I'm not sure. And they sent him the draft and he loved the idea. And he was on board and he just, he brought the whole thing home. Amazing. And as I was writing the book, I thought of it as an animated series or a potential for an animated series. And I want to have everything in the book. So when we go to animation, we'll have the same illustrations. And Douglas were amazing. So I mentioned the possibility of it turning into an animated TV show to my little one as well, on top of the fact that I think there may be at least uh, peripheral plans for having this be a series of books versus one standalone book. Are are both of those things still in the uh, realm of possibilities for you guys? So we are already finishing up the book two, which will be released in October. Excellent. And in the meantime, we have teamed up with Powerhouse with an amazing animation production house. And we have a shopping agreement with them. And we are putting the team together, the producers, the writers, in order to make a strong pitch for different platforms out there. And I would love it if this becomes an animated series. It will be amazing. You'll have at least one fan in Austin, Texas. I can guarantee you that. I'm coming to Texas, by the way, next week. Not in Austin, but in Houston. I have a comedy show there. Yeah, I saw that. And I wanted to get to your uh, stand-up career in just a second, Bassam. But uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to take things a little bit more chronologically because you have led just the most fascinating life. 
for those who are unaware, Tickling Giants is a 2017 documentary that chronicles your rise from heart surgeon in Egypt to becoming known as the John Stewart as a media personality and commentator on political issues in your native Egypt and the entire region. The film starts with you walking around during the Arab Spring of 2011, literally working your way through the chaos in Cairo's Tahrir Square, where some two million people were gathered at the time. As a medical professional, you were volunteering your services to help out injured protesters, and this ultimately led to you starting a short YouTube political satire program that eventually evolves into what I'll just go ahead and call the Daily Show of Egypt. I'm sure you still have vivid memories from that scene in 2011 during the Arab Spring, considering that you do live in L.A. now, as you just mentioned, did what was happening around this country last summer feel in any way, shape, or form like that to you? <laughs> oh, my God. Don't let me get started. I mean, like, it's hilarious. I think I kind of jinxed this country because I brought dictatorship with me. <laughs> I mean... I remember like I'm coming here and I said like I thought like I was escaping a dictatorship from Egypt only to find out that you guys are starting your own. (laughs) And uh, there was a certain president who said, oh, you know, those immigrants coming from shithole countries. So over the last year, I have seen clashes, protests, looting, police brutality, taking over the government. Civil war, the smell of a civil war, you know, the thing that you see in, in shit all countries. And I said, like, oops, karma. <laughs> oh, my God. I have to say, like, I'm going to go on a tangent here about politics. Please do. There's one thing that annoyed me, the whole thing about what happened in January, January 6th, you know, the storming of the Capitol, right? So many people have so many opinions about it, but I was focused on one thing. This was an American crisis. These were American people on American soil doing American thing to American monuments, right? But then you switch on the television and you watch the pundits. It's like, oh, my God, this looks like the Middle East. And it's like, we're minding our own business. Why are you dragging us into it? We're not, I mean, we haven't done anything and we still find ourselves in the news. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, give us a break. Why are you doing this to us? We haven't done anything. We haven't set off any bombs or anything. And we're just like sitting alone at home. Like, oh, this is the Middle East. And then we find ourselves trapped into this. And then they say, oh, this looks like a coup in an Arab country. And I said, like, guys, this is not a coup. Newsflash, when we have a coup in an Arab country, it works. <laughs> it succeeds. You guys suck at coup. <laughs> that's right. You have to put failed in front of coup if you're really going to use that. Yeah, word. that's a failed coup. In Arab, we don't have failed coup. We just have coup. <laughs> we re- we just we have perfected that art. You guys are very good at coup overseas, but when you do it to yourself, you guys suck. <laughs> Oh, man, that is hilarious. Now, uh, I guess fortunately it didn't get to the point where media is being straight up censored. Like, uh, unfortunately, what happened with you at the end of your wildly popular program when a new military leader was, quote unquote, elected as the country's president a few years ago, you were essentially pressured to either compromise the integrity of your show or shut it down. You chose the latter as a man of character. The government then attempts to further punish you for those previous criticisms by having a court ruling that levied a ridiculous and unpayable fine, you fearing for your life and that of your family. You get decide to leave, ultimately ending up in the U.S. in the fall of 2016, I believe. You were a visiting scholar at Stanford University's Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law. Your research interests were, according to the website, political satire 
in its role in disrupting political, social, and religious taboos. How much research did this role actually require by you, and what did you learn that still stands out to you to this day? Most of that research, I mean, of course, it was not just like coming from my personal experience, but if you look at, even if you look what happened in America, I mean, like, yes, maybe you didn't have a military dictator like shutting down comedians, but you have someone like Lenny Bruce, you have someone like George Carlin, you have people who have, because of their comedy and satire, they have faced persecution, jail time, censorship. And because they use satire into pushing the envelope, we have the kind of freedom of expression that we have today. So the thing with satire, authoritarian leaders, they worry about satire because they basically carry their own old rule, their own authoritarian rule through fear. And when you make fun of them, when you make fun of something, you cannot be afraid of it anymore, right? So because that kind of like takes away the hallow of fear and respect and fake reverence, and you make fun of them, they're just humans like us. And they need to be many steps ahead of us or above us. And that's why they would target satirists, like the first ones to target satirists. Even though a lot of people think of you as the John Stewart of the Middle East, that's selling you short, Bassam. You've uh, held a ton of different jobs in your life, from medical surgeon to salsa and tango teacher, <laughs> kite surfing instructor, TV host, children's author now, of course, and something you just mentioned, stand-up comedian. I'm a little bit of a nerd with regard to the art of stand-up. It's something that I only did a couple of times in my life when I was living in Chicago, but I have a ton of respect for that process. A lot of people may not realize this, but it takes a lot of hard work to become a stand-up comedian. When did you start performing stand-up here in the States? Only a couple of years ago, and it was hard, as you said. Here's the thing about actually doing anything in a foreign language. You understand like English is my second language. To write it is something, to understand it and converse with it is something else. I had like an English education as a second language, of course, at school. So my English was fair and good and okay. But it even took me some time to understand some of the American references going up. So, for example, I would understand Friends, but it took me some time to understand Frasier. Because Frasier is a much more complicated comedy. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So Friends, anybody can get it. Anywhere (laughs) in the world, if if you understand the language, anybody can get it. But if you go to like the nuisance stuff, like for example, Frasier or even Seinfeld, because if someone who's good at English but doesn't understand the references, they might watch Seinfeld and doesn't understand why this is funny. And they might not understand why Frasier is funny, which I believe that Frasier is one of the most sophisticated sitcoms ever written. Indeed. And even when I started watching Jon Stewart less than 20 years ago, I didn't understand what is Democrats, what is Fox News. What is the GOP? What is happening in America? And through John Stewart, I kind of educated myself about politics in America. So when you go into performing arts, especially stand-up comedy, that's a whole different animal. It's a whole different animal because it's not just the language. It's the pacing. It's the pausing. It's the cadence. It's the rhythm. It's reading the room. It's a whole different set of skills. It's a kind of like a total rewiring of your brain. And understanding how to kind of like to land it, when to land it, when to punch it, when to deliver it and how. That's like a whole science. And the beginnings of me doing it here were terrible. We're just like terrible. I would like leave the club Hmm. crying. (laughs) And you understand, it's kind of like falling from grace, right? I was someone who's like had a show, 40 million people were watching my show. And then I come here and I go to an open mic, try some jokes that might or might not work. 
it's required a lot of humility and a lot of perseverance and hard work. You said on a recent podcast that some American comedians have really helped you better understand those nuances of the craft. Uh, who are some of those comedians? Oh, of course, they're different. John Stewart, George Carlin is amazing. Dave Chappelle. There are people that I have personal relationships with, like Maz Jubrani, who have been, been an amazing mentor. And there are even younger comedians who might not be famous, but they have worked with them and they have been very generous with their time with me. You cannot do this alone. You cannot do this alone. I had to kind of like put my head down and kind of accept to be a student all over again. So it was an incredible experience, I have to say. Considering you're in L.A., is the Comedy Store your home club, or was it, depending on whatever happens uh, when we get to the other side of this current craziness? Yeah, it's different. I mean, yeah, the Comedy Store, I go there a lot, doing a few minutes here and there, trying new material. But most of my touring is outside of L.A., and it's been an incredible journey. It's kind of the whole thing about like reinventing yourself over and over and over again a heart surgeon to a political satirist to an author to come here and try to like, kind of like do it all over again. It's been interesting, but in the same time, very scary. Heart surgeon, stand-up comedian, advocate for plant-based diets now. You have uh, something called Plant B. People can actually check out more info at plantb.tv. It's like Plan B, but with a T there. There's so much great information at that website, blog posts, videos, healthy recipes, Q&As, and a whole lot more. And I love this because even though I'm a bit of a carnivore, I love that we are both very concerned about what people are doing to themselves with a poor diet and lack of exercise, Bassam. So many people don't realize that they're setting themselves up for a lot of chronic disease in the second half of their lives. I've always assumed things were worse in America, but I believe I read on your site that rates of diabetes and heart disease have exploded in the Middle East as well compared to 30 and 40 years ago. Is this a result of adopting some of the same junk food habits that many Americans are guilty of? Absolutely. And I can really summarize it in one sentence that was told to me by an American doctor, He's an American doctor who advocates plant-based diet. He said, like, you guys in the Middle East have always wanting to live like us. Now you're dying like us. We have adopted the American lifestyle of junk food, too much meat, too much animal products in our diet. 30, 40 years ago, that was not the case. But, you know, with the oil boom and the westernization of these countries, we have kind of followed the same exact pattern. And that's why in my website, it's a bilingual website. It's a complete website in Arabic and a complete website in English. You can choose the language because I wanted to start in the Middle East and then expand here in the United States. I joke about being Arab and vegan, which makes me scary and annoying. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I'm not the annoying type, actually. You know, you always have people resisting. I say, no, I cannot give up my meat. I cannot give up my cheese. I say, hey, you know, if you're happy, if you're enjoying your life, if you're in good health, good for you, man. Enjoy your steak. I'm not here to talk to you. But I talk to the people who have had a lot of health issues and a lot of health trouble, and they're kind of out of options. That's why I called it Plant B. It's a play on Plan B. Try another plan, Plan B, you know, try plants. I just give people an option to try it and feel better about themselves. And many people go into the 21 challenge that I put on the website, and then after the 21 days, they go back and eat meat, but not as much as they used to. They're kind of like more thoughtful about what they eat. And then every now and then they go in in the 21 days and they come back. And I tell people, it's not a cult. It is not a religion. 
people sometimes confuse my message with the kind of like the more kind of activists shocking people on the vegan community who kind of like shame people for what they eat. I cannot do that. For 40 years of my life, I ate meat and I ate animal products. I cannot judge anybody for their food choices. I'm 47 now and I'm in the best health of my life. Seven years vegan, had like the best seven years of my life. And I lead by example. But if you don't like that, you can absolutely live your life as you want. But it's kind of like giving people a different option. And I actually sold a show in an Arabic network, and it's been very successful there, based on that message. And it's catching up. And I have every day I have people sending me messages. I say, like, you know, because of you, my parents were diabetic, and they followed the plant-based diet, and they don't take medication anymore because they were cured. And people with, like, you know, connective tissue disease, autoimmune disease that have been improved on the plant-based diet because of the message. So that makes me happy. Yeah, that seems to be a consistent theme with what you put your efforts into is something that is overall positive message that can also help people out as well. I know this much, you are going to help my hummus making abilities a little bit later on. Uh, In the recipe (laughs) section, there's something called the best hummus ever. I look forward to uh, checking that out a little bit later on, feeding it to my family, Bassem. And real quick, there's a, a story that is popular in sports headlines right now here in the U.S., and that is Dallas Mavericks basketball owner Mark Cuban deciding to stop playing the U.S. National Anthem before games. It's such an interesting topic for me because this is something that we're all just kind of conditioned to expect. I'm curious, though, because you're somebody who grew up an athlete in Egypt playing a variety of different sports. We play our national anthems at pro sports, college sports, all the way down to youth sports before games. Was the Egyptian national anthem something that would get played before youth and pro sports in Egypt? No, I mean, the Egyptian national anthem only get played when we have the national team playing against a different team or the champion of our league will play a champion from a different country. It's kind of like between two countries, right? Mm. I know that this is a sensitive topic here in America, but I don't see the point of playing the national anthem in a sports event. Why put politics in sports? Well, especially because sports are so international here now, too. Putting politics and religion in everything is degrading to patriotism and to religion. All of these people, they are Americans. They love their country. You don't need them to show allegiance. It's not a fascist country. (laughs) I don't understand. And I, I really applaud Mark Cuban for doing that. Yeah, I think that's very rational. The only argument that I have for keeping something like that around, and it doesn't have to be the national anthem necessarily, is because I think it's good that we force, I guess in normal times, like stadiums full of 60,000 to 100,000 people to just take that meditative moment, to just kind of breathe and not be overwhelmed sensory-wise. Just take that minute before the game actually gets going. But ultimately... Well, why, why don't we do chimes then? Let's download the Calm app on the speaker and have somebody lead them into meditation. 100%, 100% agreed. It does not have to be a national anthem that allows that, right? You strip the politics out of the sport at that point. Last question for you, Bassam, before I... I'm, I'm, just, I'm just saying, like, when I do that, when I say, like, remove the national anthem before the sport, I do it out of respect of the flag and the national anthem. I think we should not degrade something that is so respectful and so powerful into something like sports. It's out of respect to the flag, not the opposite. I understand what you're saying. Last question for you before I bid you adieu. Have all of your successes allowed you to finally meet Monica Bellucci yet? Ah, uh, no. No. <laughs> Maybe if I do a podcast in Italian, she would listen to me. <laughs>
<laughs> Bassem Youssef is best known as the John Stewart of the Middle East, but even that impressive title sells him short. He has worked as a heart surgeon, TV host, published author, stand-up comedian, and an advocate for plant-based diets. And now he gets to add children's book author to the list. The new book is titled The Magical Reality of Nadia, and it's available now wherever books are sold. Bassam, thank you so much for the time today, and thank you for this book. Thank you so much. And thanks to you for listening. A reminder that you can check out all of our episodes and subscribe to this podcast through booksonpod.com. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review. Helps us grow the show. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod. Books on Pod.